Hello and welcome to episode 247 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Sorry we're a day late with today's episode, but the mobile broadband in my house in a rural area was down, so um, unless you want to be recording the whole show live from Tesco's Cafe somewhere near Edinburgh, I thought it was best to wait for one more day. For today's story, we head to the east of England, Norwich, to cover yet another shocking crime. But before we begin, as usual, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, and especially the new members of this exclusive club. That is Mark Clements, Beeb Glazer, Gemma Storkley, and Linda S. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Calm. There's lots going on in your life right now, isn't there? Are you travelling somewhere soon? Or maybe you're worried about going back to the office? If work from home is coming to an end, a change in your environment can make it really hard to focus on everyday tasks. Calm can help reduce stress so that you can increase your concentration. I'm delighted to be partnering with Calm, the number one mental wellness app, to give you the tools that improve the way you feel. After all, that's why over 100 million people around the world use Calm to take care of their minds. So clear your head with guided daily meditations, improve your focus with Calm's curated music tracks, and drift off to dreamland with Calm's imaginative sleep stories. For listeners to this show, Calm is offering a special limited time promotion of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com, that's C-A-L-M dot com, slash UK. That's go to C-A-L-M dot com slash UK for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com, True Crime UK. This show is sponsored by Beer 52. As a listener to the show, you can get a case of craft beer from the USA on us. Sounds good, right? It does to me too. If you haven't joined the Beer 52 club yet, I think it's time, don't you? Beer 52's experts are on a mission to find the very best beer anywhere on the planet. Each month they visit a different place, find the best small batch breweries, sample their finest craft beer, and then carefully curate a case to be sent to their lucky members. This month features UK-exclusive beers from Temperance Brewing, Noon Whistle Beer, and many more coming in fresh from the state of Illinois. Expect top US pale ales, hoppy IPAs, and a cast of superb lagers, stouts, and more. But don't worry, if you don't like dark beer, you can simply choose the light option. Your case will also include the award-winning beer magazine Ferment, as well as two tasty snacks to wash down with the beer. There's no minimum commitment, so you just take the free case, try the beer, and see what you think. And in the unlikely event it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. Just go to beer52.com slash truecrime to claim your free case now. That's beer52.com slash truecrime. Okay, so let's briefly set some context with our guest the month and year game. It was a month that saw Beetlebum from Blur top the UK charts, and Gabrielle with Walk On By getting lots of airplay. In the US, it was that dreadful, turgid, unbreak my heart from Tony Braxton. And in Australia, top of the album chart this year was Savage Garden from Savage Garden. I never get that, do you? It's like dads who give their sons their own name. Very odd. Anyway, in the news this month, O.J. Simpson was found liable in the deaths of Ron Goldman and Nicole Simpson 
in a civil court action. Dolly the Sheep, the world's first cloned mammal from an adult cell, was announced by the Roslyn Institute in Scotland. And in true crime news, the Daily Mail newspaper accused five men of the murder of Stephen Lawrence on its front page, the day after a coroner's inquest found that the teenager had been unlawfully killed in an unprovoked racist attack by five white youths in April 1993. Did you get the month and year? It was February 1997. For today's story, we head to the east of England, to a village called Horsford on the suburbs of Norwich in the county of Norfolk. February 1997 is where we pick up the story. 48-year-old Thomas Eldon, everyone knew him as Tommy, had been married to his wife Margaret for 24 years. They had two children, 17-year-old Laura and Clive, who was 15. Their marriage was a difficult one, and in November 1996, Margaret left to stay with her sister, Karen Newman. The marriage hadn't been easy for Margaret and Tommy, and Tommy wasn't an easy man to be with. He was very controlling and didn't allow Margaret any freedom. He increasingly controlled pretty much all parts of her life. Tommy himself had had a pretty tough upbringing, with 15 brothers and sisters. You had to be tough to get on in that family and be heard, and family events often ended up with some sort of fight. Tommy had got into trouble early on in his life, which resulted in him being sent to what was then known as Borstal. As we know, sending young people to prison in the hope of rehabilitation is nearly always a failing strategy. And so it was for Tommy who, on his release, carried out an armed robbery at a post office and went to prison on the Isle of Wight. Like we hear often on this podcast, Margaret wasn't aware of this and she only found out later in the marriage. Margaret too had a big family. She was one of seven brothers and sisters and she was also brought up in the same tough area of Norwich. Money was tight for the family too, but by contrast to Tommy, Margaret was a totally different character. She was kind, caring and thoughtful, a good listener and a good friend who was a loyal hard worker at a local factory. The two met at a nightclub in the centre of Norwich called Samson and Hercules. Have you been there? It's a bit of a legendary location in Norwich. It's changed name a few times. For a long time after it was known as Ritzy's and then lastly Icon, which coincidentally Margaret and Tommy's children, Laura and Clive, often frequented for its closure. And rather boringly, it's now owned by a mortgage company. It's always sad, I think, when a place with so many memories and stories loses its soul being bought by this sort of corporation. It was not long after meeting that Margaret and Tommy decided to marry and they bought a bungalow in the area. Whereas Margaret continued to work in the factory, Tommy didn't really like to be constrained by being at a certain place of work at a certain time. He hadn't got much from school and he struggled with reading and writing, so he tended to potter around making money here and there. He was handy and practical, and he would clean up tools that he found at car boot sales and antique fairs to make a patchy income. But money was never plentiful, and Tommy was always incredibly tight with what money the family did have. So much so that Margaret had to sneak into the house things like new school shoes for the children, because he would go mad that she was spending money. 
and when their son Clive was older and had a paper round, he was told only to save his money, not to spend it. He couldn't even spend the money he earned. He had to sneak in a 50p magazine that he used to buy. And when his sister Laura was older and had a full-time job, Tommy would make her pay him a large proportion of the money she earned for her upkeep. I think it's fair to say that the family would have been happier, enjoyed a better standard of living and had more opportunities had Tommy not been quite so tight with money. When Margaret became pregnant and stopped work, Tommy decided to stop work too. Why should he be working when Margaret wasn't? He continued to make a bit of money here and there, but it was very inconsistent and he eventually went down the route of claiming incapacity benefit, which he wasn't entitled to. From what you've heard so far today, it's so easy to stereotype Tommy, isn't it? But he was in many ways quite a complex character. He was very aggressive in his approach to life. He enjoyed boxing in particular, and one of his nephews actually became a professional boxer. He certainly loved women, and even when Margaret was there, he would comment on how attractive he found other women in a very crass way, showed no respect for Margaret. We've spoken about how possessive he was and mentally controlling with Margaret. He would demand specific meals at certain times of the day, cups of tea on request, even if he was free and Margaret was busy. And frankly, he would make his wife do just what he wanted when he wanted. He would often kick Margaret out of the house, saying it was all over, and they didn't want her any more, and then tell her to come back, seeming to enjoy this control he had over her. He was a cold man. He showed very little warmth. Tommy was obsessed with the news. He was constantly watching and listening and always attempted to read the local evening newspaper, although he struggled. When the news would report a particularly nasty case, it would be one of the few times that Tommy would show some emotion and he would shout out to the TV in disgust at stories, ironically, just like the one we're listening to today. He was appallingly and openly racist, even expressing his disgust at seeing black artists on top of the pops. The only time he seemed to show a good side and when he came to life was when he listened to his 60s music. It was as if this was the only time he was able to forget his troubles and lose himself in the pleasure of something else. I think Tommy suffered with his mental health, though his immediate family and other people close to him would mostly disagree, saying that he was just giving this impression to make money. He'd boasted a few times after all that he was just playing the system to again make more money from the state. He was once diagnosed with depression and he regularly took medication. On more than one occasion he tried to take his own life by taking an overdose. Were they real suicide attempts or a cry for help? Or was it simply getting the attention to manipulate the people around him further. It is of course hard to be sure, but there were certainly a number of occasions when the attempt was so serious that Tommy needed to have his stomach pumped to save his life. And there was a time when he moved his bedroom into the front room of the house, saying that he just wanted to be in a black hole. Over his life, Tommy had various stints in mental health hospitals. Margaret was a great mum but Tommy's parenting skills were limited. Although the one thing he always drilled into his children was how hard they must work on their English and maths. 
He knew that he had suffered in life due to his poor grasp of the basics. He didn't show his love and affection for his children. Well, very, very rarely. Most of the time, it was the opposite. He would call his son the village idiot when he got things wrong. Call him village for short. And he would say nasty things at other times for no other reason except to make the children feel bad about themselves. In particular, he picked on Clive, and Tommy made it quite clear that Clive was not his favourite child. Maybe it's because he was jealous of the close relationship between Clive and his mum, and the attention that Clive got from Margaret, which he felt was stolen from him. We've said that Tommy was aggressive in his approach to life, and I think a good example of this aggression is one time when a boy broke Clive's mountain bike. Margaret handled it like maybe you would by going over to see the boy's parents who said they would pay for the damage. But when Tommy learnt what had happened, this wasn't enough for him. Dragging a young and terrified Clive with him, he returned to the boy's house telling Clive that if they didn't get the money straight away from the parents, then Clive should throw a brick through the window of the house or else Tommy would beat up the boy's dad. The dad answered the door and Tommy asked him if he was going to give him the money now. The man said, yes, I've spoken to your wife, but before he could say or do anything else, Tommy started headbutting and punching the boy's dad in front of his young children. Clive was <laughs> didn't know what to do. He desperately tried to pull Tommy off the man, fearing that if he didn't, he would kill him. The man was terrified and ran out of the back door, leaving his children with Clive and Tommy. Tommy then asked one of them, coolly, to go and fetch him a glass of water. Then Tommy proceeded to sit on the bonnet of the man's car and wait for him to return. He didn't return. He didn't dare to return. But the police did turn up and told Tommy just to go home. I suppose if we're being charitable, we can say that maybe Tommy was just trying to harden his children for the inevitable battles that lay ahead, so they could navigate successfully through the challenges of life. Or maybe it was just a knob. And through all the difficulties, incidents and dramas of childhood, Margaret was there doing all that she could to protect Laura and Clive from Tommy and to help them through all the other things that happened to young children growing up to ensure they enjoyed their childhood. It was hard sometimes, but she did a great job. By November 1996, she'd had just about enough when the police were called following some threatening behaviour from Tommy. Amongst other things, Tommy threw his dinner and his plate at the lounge wall and told her to leave once again, which is when she went to live with her sister Karen, taking Laura with her. There was no room for Clive, so he had to stay at two of his friends' family homes. The day when she left, the police warned Margaret not to return. They clearly understood the situation and where it could be heading. By February 1997, Margaret was clear that she couldn't return to a life with Tommy, and she phoned him to say that she didn't love him anymore, and that she wasn't ever coming home. Tommy couldn't believe it. He was devastated and angry. All the times he had told her to leave in the past, she'd always been persuaded to return. He couldn't believe that the marriage was over after all this time, and he no longer had that power over her. He lost control of Margaret. As you can probably imagine, Tommy didn't react well. 
He thought that Karen and another sister of Margaret's, Tina, were stopping Margaret from returning and had been filling their head with all sorts of ideas. His first reaction, as so often, was violence, and he headed to Karen and Tina's house where he smashed up both their cars for hammer. Later, a karma Tommy phoned back and asked Karen and his daughter Laura to come to the bungalow to pick up some of the wife's belongings, and he said that he had some extra money for Karen to cover the car repair costs. 35-year-old Karen takes up the story of what happened next. He opened the door when we walked in and he kept hold of the handle. As soon as we were inside, he closed the door and locked it behind us. He said, are you going to tell me where she is? I said I couldn't. Then I saw this thing in his hand. I thought, this is going to hurt. Tommy attacked Karen, but then seeing his daughter head to the telephone in the hallway, he turned his attention to her. Karen could hear Laura begging her father not to hurt her, saying, Don't do it, Dad. I thought you loved me. I love you. The thing that Karen had seen in Tommy's hand was a five-inch knife, which he proceeded to use to stab his own daughter up to 37 times. Karen managed to call 999 from a mobile, but just as she finished, Tommy came back into the room with the knife, already dripping with blood. It was poised to attack her. Karen said, He carried on stabbing, and I decided just to play dead. I let out this huge sigh and flopped over, and he stopped. Believing both Karen and Laura to be dead, Tommy again stabbed and kicked what he thought were their corpses. The police had been alerted by the 999 call, and soon armed officers surrounded the bungalow. Tommy retreated to the loft of the house where he kept air rifles. But thankfully, knowing there was no escape, he surrendered quickly when the dogs were sent in. Ambulances rushed Laura and Karen to hospital and miraculously both survived. Number three, Karen, had been stabbed even more times than Laura, suffering 70 wounds. Both Laura and Karen effectively died on the operating table and were incredibly fortunate to survive, thanks to the expertise of the medical staff on the day. Margaret and Tommy's son Clive had been out that day. He got back at about 11pm, only to be told by his mum's new boyfriend just what had happened on that terrible evening. In the initial interviews and hearings, Tommy maintained his innocence. His large family appeared for every court case, and they blamed Margaret for what had happened. On more than one occasion, they became verbally abusive to Margaret and her family, and tried to start an altercation. But luckily, Margaret and her side of the family managed to maintain their dignity most of the time and rose above this yobbish behaviour. Tommy's legal team kept trying to prove that Tommy was insane, but not all the doctors that he saw agreed with this. At the trial at Norwich Crown Court, Tommy Eldon finally admitted two counts for attempted murder. His QC said how he'd been depressed and the crime had been triggered by the breakdown of his marriage. He continued that Tommy showed genuine remorse for his actions. The judge, David Miller, told Eldon on the 12th of January that year that he was selfish, vicious and manipulative as he sentenced him to 15 years in prison, saying that he should serve at least nine years before being eligible for parole. 
Tommy's children and Margaret never visited him in prison. Margaret was always terrified about just what he would do when he was released. She knew Tommy and knew that he would hold her responsible for what had happened to him. She was certain that when he was a free man, he would find her and exact his revenge. But Tommy Elder never got the chance to take any sort of revenge. In April 1998, he was found hanging from the bars of his prison cell in Norwich Prison. Despite attempts by prison staff to resuscitate him, they were not successful. And just three months after being sentenced, Tommy Eldon was dead at 48. He'd struggled in prison, being beaten up on at least one occasion. He was the fourth person to die in Norwich Prison in the opening four months of 1998, which is another scandal for another podcast. Margaret and the family did not learn the news from the prison authorities. Instead, Margaret's sister-in-law came round to the house and asked them to look at teletext, which is where they found out what had happened. Were they upset by what had happened to Tommy? No, they were all very much relieved and happy with this outcome. No tears were shed. They would never have to worry about coming face to face with Tommy Eldon ever again. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's a shocking story, isn't it? To an extent, you can just about understand the violence towards Margaret's sister, who he blamed for keeping Margaret from him, but to actually stab his own daughter. That's impossible to understand, isn't it? I'm always shocked when people die in prison, but what would have happened when Tommy got out? We heard that for 48 years he'd been aggressive, controlling, violent. When he was released, I imagine there's a very good chance he'd have gone back to exact his revenge, don't you? At least now the family are able to move on, and they have moved on with their lives. Margaret happily remarried, and no doubt came to realise what a waste of her life were the years spent with that man, except of course for both her children. And talking of her children, Both Laura and Clyde now both have families of their own. But you do have to wonder what emotional and mental damage he's caused his victims for life. Not just Laura and Karen, but Margaret, his son Clive, and the rest of the supportive family and friends. It's good to hear they've moved on, but there's still no doubt that they must still suffer when they think back about those events that happened with Tommy. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or discuss any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. There's almost 75,000 of us. We'll make you very, very welcome. And to support the show and get all the exclusive content, bonus episodes, and all the other advantages, please head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. And for less than the cost, of a coffee a month, you can support me and keep me producing a weekly podcast. So that's all for me for another week. Thank you again for listening. Sorry it was a little bit late this week. And until we speak again, despite all the others, and I know how hard it is, please do stay classy. Cheerio for now.